Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. Planetary Radio is public radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Hi, welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and Mari's your host. If you don't know Mari, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguarding Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special last year, and they still play it, uh, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, and a lot of other shows. To learn more, you can visit identitytheft.org. So let's get started. Well, we have a great show tonight. This is uh, pretty interesting stuff. Since we're sitting at the uh, University of California, Irvine, We have a wonderful professor from out east who's going to talk to us about a recent survey that they did um, called the Bentley Watchfire Survey of Online Privacy Practices in Higher Education. And it's almost disturbing, really, to to find out how the online practices at university really don't do much for privacy. In fact, you know, recently we've seen so many security breaches with regard to the personal information of students and uh, former students and professors. Uh, From, let's see, I'm looking at the chronology of data breaches, and from, gee, way back in uh, February of 2005, all right, through the end of May, there were 67 publicly, uh, you know, published uh, breaches, breaches, yeah. breaches of, of of universities, and, and just take a guess of how many millions of people uh, lost, you know, lost their personal information. I don't have to guess. I added it up. <laughs> what was the number here? Over, over two million. It was actually almost two million. What? More than that, two and a half. Two and a half million. Yeah. Yeah, just in that, and it's growing. And those are the ones that are publicly released. I noticed a lot of the, the, you know, the universities didn't even release the number of students and number of professors who had uh, been, you know, subjected to this breach. So this this kind of stuff is going on. And we let me tell you a little bit about our guest. She is a professor. 
and uh, she actually was in charge of the survey. How I found out about her was because I received this survey from a friend of mine, Beth Givens, you know, from the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. And I read the survey, and I said, we have to get this very talented and bright professor to come on our show, and we're so glad to have her. Let me tell you about Mary Cullinan. Mary Cullinan is uh, the Slade Professor of Management and Information Technology at Bentley College in Waltham, Massachusetts. And, you know, our uh, our son went to, not too far, terribly far away, at, at Williams College. He got his master's there. Yes, he did. Yep. Anyway, it's a beautiful state. Um, Ms., Ms., uh, Professor Cullinan's recent current research in, interests include privacy, promoting security on home computers, and online communities. She's the author of more than 90 articles, including publications in the MIS Quarterly, the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing, the Information Society, Management Science, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. And she also has testified before Congress and her Massachusetts legislature and other governmental agencies on a wide variety of privacy issues. She's also currently, uh, she serves as a member of the Government Accounting Office's Executive Council on Information Management and Technology. So she is brilliant, and she's a techie, too. Um, She served as a commissioner on the President's Commission on Critical Infrastructure Protection, and she's the author of the 1999 Georgetown Internet Privacy Policy Survey, which the Federal Trade Commission used to make recommendations to Congress. She's just done so many things, and actually Business Week uh, profiled her as a mover and shaker. She holds a Ph.D. in management right from our state, from UCLA, so she's part of the UC system as well. So you can learn more about her at our website at KUCI.org forward slash privacy. So I want to welcome you, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Mari. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, you are really a mover and shaker, and that is for sure. Tell us about this Bentley Watchfire survey of online privacy uh, practices in higher education. What was the intent of this uh, survey? Well, we wanted to do a, a first benchmark study of online privacy practices in higher education. There have been a number of these surveys conducted in the dot-com, the private sector world, but nothing in the dot-edu world. So we were looking to see, do colleges and universities post online privacy notices? Are these notices complete? Can people read them? And how does higher education stack up against the dot-com world? Right. And, and why is, I guess this is a rhetorical question, but you can answer, why is online privacy important for higher education? Well, college and university websites are no longer just brochureware. It used to be in the earlier days of the web, you'd go and you would basically be reading the college catalog online, and that was about it. But now most schools are engaging in e-commerce. People apply online, both for jobs and to become a student. Uh, you can ask questions uh, about the school and get a, an electronic inquiry. You can, if you're an alum, you can donate online. You can buy T-shirts. You can buy books. You can buy athletic tickets over the Internet. All the same kinds of commercial activities that potentially raise privacy concerns in the private sector. So privacy has really become an important risk management issue for higher education. And you know what, you can even, you know, I, I know people have contacted me as a professor here at, at UCI. People can contact me. I also do my grades online. Oh, yeah. So all this, you know, private information, of course, you know, it's supposed to be encrypted. And, you know, that there 
Even though in California, um, the, the law is is that you cannot use the Social Security number anymore as the student ID, although it still was that until just a couple of years ago. Um, but still, that Social Security number is collected by the university, and it's sitting in their files. Absolutely. And uh, as you mentioned earlier in the show, or Lloyd mentioned, there have been a lot of breaches in higher education, and so people, I think, are rightfully concerned about this. Um, in fact, there was some data collected by the California Office of Privacy Protection and found that since 2003, the higher ed in that in California had accounted for about 28% of the security breaches in California, more than any other group, including financial institutions. So the issue from the higher ed point of view is if people are concerned about the risk, they think they're information once they disclose it's going to be used inappropriately, they're going to get spammed, it's going to be given to third parties, or it's at risk of being stolen, they're not going to be as interested in doing business online. And just like the private sector, colleges and universities can provide better service at lower costs by using the Internet, and it's a lot cheaper to process bits of information than paper, but if people feel that the privacy risks are too great, they aren't going to want to do business online. Exactly. And do you think that there's more of like a cavalier attitude um, in the IT departments for higher, you know, higher education than there is maybe in commercial entities, banks uh, and others? No, I think, I think colleges and universities are concerned about privacy. I know, and security, at least at my own institution, I know they are. Uh, I just think that maybe this hasn't gotten on the radar screen to the extent that it's gotten on the radar screen in the in the private sector, and uh, but hopefully that this survey will be something of a wake-up call and, and get people going to do a better job. But I definitely think that the, the hearts are in the right place. It's just uh, putting in place a governance process that, to treat information as an asset. Let's talk kind of like before, you know, some of the things that you looked at. Let's, let's give an overview of the fair information principles so that people have an idea of what they're supposed to be thinking about with regard to privacy. So fair information principles are uh, guidelines for how companies should responsibly manage personal information. And there are different versions of, of fair information practices around the world. In the U.S., the current widely accepted version uh, is based on four elements. The first is notice. Notice means that companies, organizations, universities should tell you what information they're going to collect from you and how they're going to use it so you make an informed choice if you're going to provide information. They should provide you with choice. That's the second element. Choice means you have the right to say no when your personal information is collected for one purpose and it's going to be used for other unrelated purposes unless the unrelated purposes required by law. In that case, you don't usually get to say no. The third fair information principle is access, that people should have the right to see their personal information and correct any errors. And then the fourth fair information principle is security. That is, the organizations, be it colleges and universities or companies or charities or government organizations that collect personal information should protect it from unauthorized access both when it's being stored and also while it's being transmitted from your home computer to their servers. 
And wasn't there kind of the overview of how you went into this study? Let's talk a little bit about the study. So how did you set up this study? And, and you know, it was very interesting. I read it. And, you know, what was your, your methodology? And uh, we'll get into methodology and findings. Also, I think that's great. And if anybody out there listening wants to get a copy of the report, I think you have a link on your website. Yes, but we also, do. Also, they can go to www.bentley.edu. And the URL is quite long, but if they do a search for privacy survey, the, it will come right up. Right, and they so, can find it. And I linked it right next to your name, so that uh, right next to your bio, so anybody who wants to read the survey, they can find it. It's fascinating. So let's, let's talk about it, and we'll get everybody excited to go see it. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, uh, basically, what we did, the study was based uh, after some of the surveys, web surveys that the FTC had done in the late 1990s to look at the dot-com world. And I actually conducted the 1999 study that the FTC used. And what these did uh, was basically do a content analysis of privacy notices on websites, which will tell you what companies are saying that they're doing with your information, doesn't tell you what they're doing actually behind the scenes. And obviously it's impossible to go in and audit 100 or 200 or 500 different companies. What we did here is a little bit different because we actually did collect some data on what companies are actually doing. So we did two things. First, uh, with the help from the partner Watchfire, Watchfire is a software company located in Waltham, Massachusetts, and they have uh, software tools that they use, create to uh, let companies help uh, manage privacy and security risks and to audit whether their websites are in compliance with their policies. They approached me about doing a study and said they would help collect the data. So for our sample, they went and scanned the websites using their uh, WebXM privacy software and looked for a number of privacy risks. I'll talk about those in a minute. And then we also did the traditional analysis that's typical of web surveys. We downloaded the privacy notices for all the websites in our sample that had a privacy notice and we went through and analyzed them by hand. And then finally, we did a readability analysis of the privacy notices to see whether they were written at an appropriate grade level for the audience. Right, and you took the um, the top 236 schools from the United U.S. News and World Report 200, uh, 2004 list of best colleges, and I noticed that of of those li- uh, on those lists, uh, UCI was number 43, not in privacy, but number 43 in terms of the best colleges on the uh, doctoral that have doctoral programs. Right. So, so we were one of those in the survey. So, uh, along with a lot of the UCLA, UC Davis, UC San Diego, so a UC lot of the Berkeley. UC schools. Uh huh. UC Berkeley. So, actually, most of the UC uh, schools were were on there. Uh, yes, we looked at the started with the U.S. News list. The reason for selecting this is basically the these are the top schools that have the highest visibility and my hunch was if anybody was going to do a good job with privacy it would be these highly visible schools and also it's an objective list instead of me deciding what schools to sample right right uh, so we picked these and we used the top 100 doctoral universities these are schools that offer both undergraduate degrees and masters degrees and PhDs and then we took the top 100 liberal arts colleges. So these are smaller colleges that offer bachelor's degrees, and uh, most of their majors are in the liberal arts. And because there are ties in the rankings, we actually had 
not 200 schools. We had 236 schools. Right, If right. you go back to the list, there are actually 238 schools in the original list, but we found that we couldn't access the websites of two of the schools, so we dropped them and went ahead with our list of 236. Okay, so so what happened? You got this list, and then and then uh, Watchfire took over. Is that how this uh... Watchfire took over? What we did. One of the questions is the the software that that Watchfire and there are other companies that make similar software, but Watchfire was the one that offered to came with and was interested in doing the study, which is why we use their software. Sure. They this program, is, and I'm not that much of a techie, but I'll try to give a sort of a general explanation of how it works. It crawls websites looking for different kinds of characteristics. Originally, this software was written to look for broken links because in the early days of the web, links would come and go, and, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than clicking on a link and right. it's dead. Right. And so the software was written so people with a website could run it and they could find where the broken links were instead of turning, you know, like armies of lowly paid people loose surfing, <laughs> trying to look for right. things that didn't work. It hands you back a nice report, and then you could go fix the things that didn't work. So if you could crawl for broken links, you could crawl for any almost anything where you can go and read the HTML code on the page and search for something. Right. So in this case, it looks for privacy risks, the software. And one of the things is when you turn this thing loose, it crawls and crawls and crawls, and a lot of websites are very large. So rather than just send it randomly down a path, we wanted to make sure that we visited the parts of the website that collect personal information. So we actually ran five scans for each school, and we looked, started at the home page. We started at undergraduate admissions. That's clearly a place where personal information gets collected. Right. We looked at the uh, athletics page because most schools are selling tickets. We looked at the alumni page because they collect personal information from alums and collect donations. And then we looked at the HR employment page because people can apply for jobs online and you provide personal information there. Right. And so for each of the schools, we scanned approximately 200 pages from each of these starting URL. And overall, in the study, Watchfire scanned more than 174,000 web pages across all of our schools. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we were looking for three basic kinds of, of privacy risks. Uh, we looked for pages, web pages that did not have a link to a privacy notice. A best practice is that every page should have a link to the privacy notice. This is typically at the bottom of the page. Uh, we looked for data collection form issues where a page had a form where they were requesting personal information, hopefully, not just a search form, and the page did not have a link to a privacy notice, or it was a non-secure page, meaning when you pulled up that page, you were asked to provide information, but you didn't get the padlock at the bottom of the page. Oh, dear. Uh, and this yeah. means that, right, the information would be transmitted over the Internet without being encrypted. So this huh. is another risk. Right. And then the third thing we look for, uh, the existence of cookies. People don't seem to be too concerned about cookies anymore, but they, they do raise privacy issues, and they should be included in the privacy notice. Right, right. So, so this is what the scan looked for, and then the Watchfire people handed us back a couple of giant spreadsheets with totals uh, for each of the schools, each of the 236 yeah. schools. So wh what did you learn from that survey? Well, we learned that basic, based on what, you know, this is what's actually happening on the websites, not what people are saying in their privacy notices, things weren't so good. Yeah, okay? right. <laughs> Just uh 
100% of all the schools had at least one web page that didn't have a link to a privacy notice. And on average, uh, each school had uh, about 587 pages over all these different parts of the website that were missing privacy links. And again, uh, everybody should have a privacy link on every one of their web pages. Uh, at least almost 100% of both types of schools had at least one data collection form on a page with no link to the privacy notice, meaning you're being asked for information, but you don't have a chance to go and check and see what the, what they're, they're going to do with it. What they're going to do with <laughs> yeah, it, what right. the rules are, and if these, are, if these rules are okay with you. Um, the same thing, nearly 100% of them used a method of collecting data called GET, which can result in the information that you type being stored in the browser's history file and in the web server log, and that creates an increased risk if the information is sensitive that uh, it could be stolen. It's kind of out there in semi-public. So it's uh, sitting out there on a on a browser. On a browser, or and there's an, another technique that can be used that doesn't raise this risk. That's preferable, more secure. A hundred percent of both types of schools had at least one non-secure page with a data collection form. On the average, there were 400 of these per school. Wow. So it's even though this was sort of a brute force approach to collecting data, the odds are that at least some of these forms were used to transmit sensitive information across the Internet without adequate security. And Mary, you know, I think what's really scary is these kids that are uh, applying online or, you know, sending sensitive information online to these schools, they they have, I think, a, a mindset that this is a university, and especially the top, you know, 200 universities, right? They're thinking these are the best universities. They're going to protect me. They're They're not... You know, they're not thinking like, oh, this is a dangerous place to go. You know what I mean? Like an online auction. They're not going to have that mindset to be wary as well, I, they would, you know, when they're purchasing something. Absolutely. And and I think one of the issues is uh, that helps the higher ed world is that I think they in, schools enjoy a high measure of trust. Right. I mean, I know I think very highly of all the schools I attended. I believe they're doing the best they can to protect my information. They're probably not doing, you know, sort of up to, to snuff in terms of best practices. Um, so, so that's one thing in their favor. People, I think, are willing to transact business with them online because they do, they are trusted. Right. As opposed to, like, a brand-new website you've never heard of. They have, right. The, the, the top schools have very strong brands, and even a school that's not well-known probably enjoys a lot of trust among its alums and, you know, its it's yeah, but I was looking at your, your list, like, you know, my alma mater was on there, and my son who went to Duke, his his alma mater was on there. Do you know what I mean? And and actually, his school was one that had a breach, and, and my alma mater had a breach, and of course, uh, UC Berkeley had a breach. And um, so it's true, there's this, like, you have this mindset of, this is a trusted place, I can reveal my information, they're going to protect it. And so this is very disconcerting. For, for those, I would think, who are students even here at the university listening to this. And it's, it's uh, you know, very uh, upsetting for parents who are listening to this, too, thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, we're trusting this university to protect this information, and it really doesn't look like they're doing that. Uh, the other thing that uh, I think that is uh, interesting about this, well, first of all, let me mention also the, the fact about the cookies. Right. I didn't mention. Basically, one way that the higher ed world 
differs very dramatically from the dot-com world is there's very low use of cookies. Right, I uh, noticed and that. And so that, that turned out uh, not to be a big issue. But the, the other issue with higher ed is once you dip your toe in the water, you know, you're, you apply to go to school, you get accepted, you enroll, and it's sort of this, you know, womb-to-tomb data collection. Schools amass a huge amount of personal information about all of us. Right. And uh, a lot of it's stored online, and you know, there's probably as much or more information than most private sector organizations collect about their customers. Exactly. And so that's one of the other reasons that this deserves attention is just because of the, the large amounts of, of data that is collected and stored on students who then become graduates, who then become alums. And, you know, you have a longer relationship with your alma mater than you probably do with any other institution except maybe the federal government or the state government. Right. And then, you know, in terms of accessing that information, you know, students just may not realize what information is out there that that somehow could be unauthorized and, and shared in an unauthorized way and then come back to bite you in the bottom, you know, many years later. Right. Well, that, well, that gets off into a completely separate issue, the whole the issue that uh, a lot of the younger people are fairly cavalier about what they're willing to disclose about themselves online in yes. a lot of these new uh, sort of social networking sites, which is probably the topic for another show. But yeah, like MySpace. Yeah, we've talked yeah, about that. Like Facebook and all of these where, you know, I was warned my students, it's like, it's not a good idea to post pictures of yourself with your underwear on your head. You know, this may keep you from getting a job at exactly. some point in the future. Just, you know, think before yeah. you post. Right. You know, we had uh, Fran Meyer on the show who is, uh, you know, the executive director yeah, of Trustee. Yes, I know Fran. And Fran, and Fran was saying there should be some kind of a law that, you know, that anything that's on the web that um, you know you that somehow you put on there before you were twenty five can be totally eradicated, right. you know, <laughs> you know, and and we you know we've talked before about cyber stalking and, and cyber identity theft and all the horrible things that happen on MySpace. So that that's another thing. But let's get back now. After you had this kind of automated survey, then you went into much more detail with your manual survey. Let's talk a little bit about what you all did with the manual survey. Okay, and I want I really want to give a shout out to my terrific graduate assistant named Tom Carlin. He just got his MBA at Bentley and he did, uh, really did all, a lot of the heavy lifting on the data analysis, did a terrific job and I really appreciated his help on this. Well, that's great. So basically what we did was we did the a content analysis of the privacy notices that were linked from the home page. So we did not go through and search and search and search thousands of web pages hoping we would find a privacy policy. Best uh, privacy notice. Best practices say it should be linked from the home page. And so we found that there were six, only 65 schools out of the 238, that's only 28%, had a privacy notice that was linked from the home page. And so if they had one, we downloaded it, and then we did a content analysis to see whether or not it was based on fair information practices, which people will remember we talked looking to see if there was notice, choice, a statement about access, a statement about security, and also we looked to see did the website talk about the scope of the notice, that is the notice may not apply to the whole website, well what's included and what's excluded, 
Uh, does it have contact information? If you have a privacy question, you should be able to get in touch with someone at the organization who's responsible for privacy. Oh, that's crazy making when they have some policy and you can't find a contact Right. You know, somebody to email or call. Yeah, exactly. That, that's happened to me, yeah. And then also, does privacy notices change over time, and there should be some statement about how, how changes are handled. How will you find out about changes if the notice changes in sub substantive way? So we looked at all of these uh, websites, and we really found pretty much it was a mixed bag. And Again, this is speaking just for the 65 sites that did have a privacy notice. Only about half of the 65 notices said anything about whether or not the site collected personal information. So that, I mean, that's sort of the most basic element of fair information practices is notice. And so only half were doing that. Only about 61% said anything at all about security. Not that they're going to post their entire security procedures. That's not a good idea. Right. But they should reassure people that they have taken appropriate steps to secure the information, and really good privacy notices will do that. Only a third of the notices described how people could access their personal information. Less than 60% said anything about cookies. Even if you're not using cookies, uh, it's a good idea to say something because if people are concerned, that way they will be reassured. Right. right. Only about two-thirds had any contact information for privacy concerns and only uh, 63% had a scope statement telling, you know, the privacy policy cover notice covers certain kinds of information, but prob maybe not the whole website. And again, it's important to remember that these no uh, results only apply to 14% of the 236 schools that even had a homepage privacy notices. So overall, uh, these results were not very good. The doctoral universities did slightly better than the liberal arts colleges, but the results really weren't that different across the two types of schools. Mary, you know, you mentioned in your survey about our California law. We have the California Online Privacy Protection Act of 2003, and it, it sets forth um, baseline requirements that, you know, that serve as a starting point, which you, you referred to that you thought were a pretty good idea. And um, it, re it requires any entity that collects personally identifiable in identifiable information from anybody, a California resident, through the Internet, um, a website for commercial purposes that has uh, that they must post a privacy policy, and they have to comply with that privacy policy. So that's one of the things that we would hope we would look for on at least all of the California schools, that they would have a privacy policy and they would identify the various categories of personal information, uh, who they share with, who they sell with, how to access, all the, you know, all the uh, pri principle, privacy, uh, fair information principles. Um, did you find that? Uh, find that in terms of did the schools do this? Yeah, did they? Did uh, not, we did not, I didn't go through and specifically analyze the content of the privacy notices against the California law. I mean, one of the issues, because I, I think this law is terrific, and it's a really good starting point for a good basic privacy notice. If everybody did this, you know, this would be a, a terrific start. Right. Um, I think, I mean, one of the issues is people are very familiar with the security breach law in California because there's, it's been in the news so much. Right. And because basically it, it probably strikes fear in people's hearts when, you know, they get the letter saying you're information has been breached. Um,
but I think people are not quite as familiar with this with this other law. The other issue is, uh, and I'm not a, an attorney, but I have asked a couple of people. I said, does this apply to the .edu world? Since technically they're not commercial organizations, they're nonprofits, but they do collect information for commercial purposes. If at least that's how it strikes me. If you're selling things and taking credit cards to right. you know for tickets. Um, so I think the jury's out in terms of whether or not that this law applies to the higher education world. I think and, you know, when we talk about in California, because I, I sit on the uh, Office of Privacy Protection uh, in California, and when we have set forth the recommended practices for this law and for our Social Security uh, law and um, for our security breach law, uh, Personally identifiable information really refers to things like your social security number in conjunction with your name and your uh, birth date and, and sensitive information. So you don't even have to have a credit card. In other words, if, if the school is collecting your social security number, that's personally identifiable information that they don't need to have a credit card. So every, you know, from my perspective, uh, being intimately involved with these laws, you know, that the uh, all of the California schools should be subjected to this for sure. I, I think the point is also, even if they're not legally bound to do this, right. it's the right thing to do, um, and they should be they should be doing this. So I agree with you completely on that. Uh, one of the other things that's interesting about this is this: if this law does apply to higher education, it really is a national law because all of these schools collect information from California residents. Right. I mean, if one Californian applies to any of these schools or purchases a T-shirt from any of these schools or you know interacts with them online in, in any other way, Basically, the law kicks in, and they're not going to have a privacy link that you can only look at the notice if you're from California. It then applies to everybody. So, you know, that's uh, what's been great about some of our our, Cal our California laws, because California is such a big state, and there's so many residents here that do business outside of the state of California. For example, the security breach law. You know, when when there were the first major security breach that we learned about back in February of 2005 with Choice Point, they had to end up notifying, you know, all the California residents. And then they kind of got sucked into to notifying all of the residents across the com country. And, and so we have been so fortunate in developing these laws that they have really affected change in our social security um, confidentiality law affected the Blue Cross Blue Shield and all of the health carriers. For example, I don't know if you used to care, have uh, Blue Shield, Blue Cross, but I know they used to use the Social Security number as your ID number. Yes, my own. I have a different health care provider here in Massachusetts, but they also did that, and they finally gave us all new numbers yeah, they and had new to. ID cards. Uh, I don't think they operate in California, but they did it because it was the right thing to do. Right, so. right. But, you know, like Blue Cross and Blue Shield had to do it. Right. And when they had to do it for California residents, they just figured, do it for okay, everybody. just do it for everybody. So you guys across the country really have, have benefited by some of the laws that we've passed. And then, of course, uh, the federal laws have, have been trying to water us down ever since we've done things like this. So. But I agree. We are, <laughs> all of us that care about privacy are very grateful to California for getting, getting the ball rolling. So. Yeah, yep. We, we appreciate, we appreciate that. 
We're fortunate. Let me just reintroduce you again because we are, you know, people are driving by and, and they're listening or they're at school and they just turn on the radio. And we are li- we are speaking and interviewing tonight um, Mary J. Colnan, who is a professor of information technology. She is the Slade Professor of Management and Information Technology at Bentley College in Waltham, Massachusetts, which is really pretty close to Boston, right? We are. We're about 10 miles uh, west of Boston. Well, such we're, a uh, where the, the, we were, are where the former Silicon Valley of uh, Massachusetts is, <laughs> used to be out. We're right off of Route 128. Such a fun place to be and such an intellectual and great cultural environment. I love Boston. It is. It could be a little bit warmer. That's uh, the only complaint. I'm, I'm imagining myself in Southern California right now. It's uh Oh, it's hot it's here. Nice. Yeah, it's beautiful here right now. And I remember going, I did a... Um, what what was the name of that last school I did the program at in Boston? Um, it begins with an S. But anyway, I Suffolk? went there. Yeah, Suffolk. Suffolk Law School. I did a program for them, and I came in, and I froze to death. It must have been 10 degrees below zero. And uh, I came from sunny Southern California to, to that, and it was... Uh, Walking around there, and oh, it's horrible. But it, I love the city. It's it's a it great is, it's a great city. Um, let me say one other thing about the survey results because we didn't talk about readability. This was, I was just going to ask you. Great, oh, good. Uh, that's another thing that's important because you know you could have great a great privacy <laughs> policy, but if your notice is incomprehensible to people, it's not going to help them. Uh, decide whether or not they can trust you, and it doesn't help people understand what's going on. So. Um, one of the things about most of the dot-com privacy notices have really gotten a bad rap, I think, legitimately because they are not very readable. A colleague and I did a, a study of uh, over 300 top dot-com websites, and approximately half of those notices were written above a high school graduate level, which for the general population makes them unreadable for a large chunk of these people who haven't necessarily graduated from, you know, high school or certainly haven't been to college. But the the higher education world came out really well on the readability scale. We used a scale called the Flesch-Kincaid grade level score, which goes through and looks at the sort of how complicated the words are and how complicated sentence structures are, and it computes a, a score that's equivalent to a grade level. And for the doctoral universities, we found the average readability was just slightly above the ninth grade level, and it was just slightly below the ninth grade level for the liberal arts colleges. And so this was really terrific because this is, I would say, the appropriate reading level for a higher education website. Probably doesn't have to be readable for you know people in elementary school, uh, but clearly for people who are in high school and starting to look at colleges, and for people who have already graduated from college, this is. This is great. But the one area where the readability could be improved is they could be easier to navigate. Because on the average, uh, for the 65 notices in our sample, the average length was 735 words. And so anybody out there that has to write term papers and you're told 10 pages, it's like, okay, 250 words. You know that that 735 words comes out to about three pages long of text, double-spaced. Right. Um, but most of these notices didn't use any t- internal links to make it easier to navigate the notice. And uh, for one thing, if you go to a privacy notice of a, of a website that has like a trustee privacy seal, right, right. they basically are, they're long notices, but they tend to be easy to navigate because a lot of them have links. So they'll have an index at the top saying, you know, 
notice, you know, what are your choices, how do I access my information, what about security, et cetera, et cetera. You click on the link, it takes you to that part of the notice instead of having to wade through a lot of text. And so this is one area where people could put in a little effort and really take advantage of the web to make their notices easy for people to get through to the part that they're particularly looking for. You know, I think the other thing about this, and, and I haven't looked a lot at a lot of these university privacy notices, but they also use small point, you know, um, the font is very tiny yeah. on a lot of them, which makes it hard to read as well. I mean, it'd be one thing if you were being charged by the, uh, you know, the pixel. Right. But basically, <laughs> you're not, so there's no reason not to make these legible. And, as you know, people are saying as we get older, too, you know, our eyes are gets sure. wintier and it gets harder to read the small print. So, And even students, you know, when you're tired after studying and then you get on there and you're supposed to look at something and then you have to read something with tiny print, it's, it's, it's hard for you. It's hard. And it doesn't make people want to read the notices because they're very unappealing if, right. if the font is too small. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, I talk to people and I tell them, you know, read the privacy notices on these websites. And people just, you know, they don't bother. If You know, that's one thing in this virtual world. We're in such a hurry when we're on, you know, even like emails. You're, you're quickly writing an email and then you send it before you don't, you know, you take a look at it a second time. Or you quickly type in an address and somehow it goes to somebody else. You know, that's happened to me a couple times. So I've really tried to slow down. But I... I wonder how many people really even read these privacy notices. I wonder what the surveys would show, especially students. What do you think? Um, I guess as the students don't read privacy notices, I think my own experience is, at least with the younger students, they tend to be more privacy insensitive, partly because uh, I think they haven't had experience with having personal information at risk. They tend to be more curious. They're more likely, I think, probably to, to open spam or possibly respond to phishing emails where you get these fake emails from eBay or from a bank saying, you know, your account is screwed up, give us your information so we can fix it, and then the next thing you know you've given away the access to your bank account to somebody who doesn't deserve to have it. Um, so I, I think the, and a lot of the surveys have shown the younger, younger people tend not to be as privacy Sensitive. I have done some research on this uh, with a colleague at the University of Massachusetts, and uh, one of the things we found, uh, people typically, they don't read privacy notices all the time, but they do read them when it matters. If they're visiting a website that they're not familiar with or don't have a lot of experience with or it doesn't have a, a, a name, a household name that they recognize, and they're being asked to provide information and they may not be so sure, they will go read the privacy notice or in some cases, just the fact there's a link to a privacy notice reassures them, although that's clearly they should read the notice. Right, because some of the privacy notices say that we're going to do anything we want exactly. with your information. <laughs> and people think, oh, there's a privacy notice, everything must be fine. But, I mean, I think, so the, a lot of, I hear some people arguing, well, you know, nobody clicks on the notice, so what's the point? Well, these are a lot like food labels, to me, at least. I mean, when you go to the grocery store, you see a lot of people reading food labels. But if you're buying Cheerios, for example, every time you go to the grocery store and you read the food label once and you have no reason to believe the food labels change, why would you read it every time exactly. you go to buy it? Exactly. Um, but information of this type pri helps people make choices. And so it's really in the interest of organizations that want consumers to choose them to have a good privacy notice because if they're new to the company, new to the site, 
Or, again, if they're being asked to provide a lot of information and maybe they're not quite sure, the notice helps reassure people that the risk is acceptable, that their information is not going to be compromised, it's not going to be used in ways they don't appreciate. And the same way you read the food label and you don't like the ingredients, you're maybe going to put that back on the shelf and pick something else. You know, Mary, it reminds me of the privacy notices that we've been getting, you know, since Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act passed the, you know, the Financial Modernization Act passed back in 1999 when we started getting the privacy notices telling us what, you know, what these financial companies are doing with our information and how they're sharing it. And, you know, so many people, there were surveys showing that people just throw those things away. And, um, and a lot of those were unreadable as well. And I think you're right. I think people, we have to educate people more as to why they have to read these privacy notices and what it really means to them. Exactly. And Just like with food notices, the notice itself does not educate people about nutrition. But with food, with the nutritional labels, food labels, there was a lot of independent education done to help people understand why certain things are better for you than others, why you shouldn't eat too many fats or maybe you don't want to eat carbs or you've got a food allergy Sugars, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So then it created a demand for the label because people were aware of why this information is important and why I would like to pick this up. And then they did a lot of testing of the notices so that they were they work. They're all the same on every product. So people, I think, make tremendous use of these. We aren't quite there yet on privacy notices on either of those two fronts. It, one is I think people don't understand what's at risk and why they should right. read the privacy notice. Right. And so that's very important. And then the second thing is the notices, a lot of times because of legal requirements, are typically horrible. Right. They are not consumer friendly at all. And that's because they're trying to serve multiple purposes. They're trying to help consumers. They're trying to be compliant with the legal requirements. So there's there's a project out there that to develop what's called a layered notice, mm -hmm. and this is actually a terrific idea. Layered notice looks kind of like a food label, but for privacy. And the, if a website adopts this, this is the sort of consumer-friendly notice with just the key facts that uh, they think people need to know about privacy in order to do business. But then the layered notice is linked to the full notice. So if you... Want so to that learn would be more, like, you just click on it, and it takes you to, you know, everything you could want to read. So, Mary, are you saying like this little, like a, like a food label type thing would be maybe on the homepage so people can see up front, you know, we collect or we don't collect? What kinds of things are on this uh, so-called right. label? Well, I think it depends. There's no, there's no formal standard for this. But, but typically what you would do, you would click on the link that says Privacy Notice. It would take you to this box, like a one-screen box, uh -huh. uh, with maybe five or six elements in it, and then that would have hyperlinks as part of the layered notice that would then take you to the full notice. So what would it say, something like, we collect cookies or we don't collect cookies? Exactly, or um, we secure your information, here's how to contact us, uh, you know, here, here are your choices about uh, having your information shared, you know, do you want to receive email from us, do you not want to receive email from us? Um, and... Uh, that's but, a good idea. Something short and sweet, and then if you want to read more, if you're exactly. intense like you and I, then we're going to go and read the whole thing. But if you're uh, like Lloyd sitting here, you're just going to look at the box. <laughs> and, 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 that, and it should be readable, and it should be understandable. But again, people have to know why it's a good idea to look at it, just like why it's a good idea to see 
what's in the food that you're taking home from the grocery store. Mary, it also reminds me of, you know, I went to the doctor recently and I'm getting, you know, the HIPAA notices, which are really disclosure notices, you know. Right. And and people don't understand those either. They're signing, uh, they pretty much have to sign uh, those things and... uh, Saying you you got the notice, right. Right, right. And uh, it, it... it doesn't really tell you. I mean, it's not very clear, even though I noticed the last one I saw was like 12-point uh, type, you know, so the font was big, and that was great. I like that part. But, again, you know, I understand this stuff, and I could see that no one would understand what I read. <laughs> yes, and, it's, again, that's, it's the same issue as with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley yes. notices. The law says you have to provide it, but it, to comply with the law doesn't necessarily mean you end up with a notice that average regular people can understand. So so Mary, let me introduce you again as people go by. We are we are here speaking with a wonderful privacy expert who happens to um, be out there in in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts. She is the shade professor of management and IT at Bentley College and she has uh, just recently done uh, a new survey on privacy, online privacy uh, in higher education. We've been talking about that, but you know a lot more about a lot of different aspects of privacy. You know, how is it that we can educate people more as to privacy issues? I'm, I'm seeing that there's so much going on in privacy, everything from, you know, the Patriot Act, the security breaches, the NSA surveillance, all of these different things that are going on right now, and I think people are just overwhelmed and lost. Yeah, I agree, and I think that's a really good question. I think you have to do it little by little. I mean, I try to do this in my classes because I just feel it's my responsibility. And I said some, some and I and teach my students also about security and other kinds of just basic consumer, a little bit about consumer protection that they need to check their credit report and how they can keep that from getting screwed up since. I'm currently teaching freshmen, and they're just starting out as you know, eighteen-year-old adults with their own sort of their own financial lives, and uh, and they're getting lots of pre-approved offers immediately as students at the yeah. university, right? So I think so. So part of it's just trying to do you know a little bit at a time. The other thing is you know I guess if people don't, if it's not the right moment for them, you know they say it should be at a teachable moment, then basically you know. I think people are not going to pay attention. And then, as you said, there's just so much and, you know, what's happening with the federal government versus what's happening in higher ed versus the online commercial privacy world. They're all different. What's happening in the workplace, you know, there are privacy issues there that are completely different. You're right. It is it is pretty overwhelming. No, the- um, but there are some. The one thing is that there are some good websites out there, like the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Yes. So if people know about that when privacy is on their mind, if they go there, you know they have a lot of terrific fact sheets. So that's helpful right. to people. Privacyrights.org, and and right. uh, we have interviewed Beth. Beth is a co-author with me on a book called Privacy Piracy, and a friend of mine. So she's been on our show a couple times. And, and yes, we always tell people to go to privacyrights.org. And the Federal Trade Commission has a lot of good stuff at ftc.gov. They do. And, you know, I wanted to ask you, you are, um, you know, involved with the Government Accounting Office, and they come out with some great studies um, about privacy and various issues. Are you involved with some of those studies? or uh, Not directly. What we our uh, advisory committee does, we meet usually meet once a year and discuss their upcoming agenda, give them suggestions for uh, their IT agenda, 
they have become very interested in both privacy and security in recent years, but uh, they also do a whole range of of IT issues for largely for the federal government uh, in terms of you know they've they've been studying the IRS and its information systems challenges for decades, and uh, they study the air traffic safety system. They've recently been looking at. Uh, they did a study on the federal government's acquisition of third-party data, right? Um, which raises some, you know, from some of these large database compilers. And because the federal government isn't collecting the information itself, it's not directly covered by the Privacy Act. And so there's some issues there in terms of how the privacy of this information is protected and how it's used once it gets into the hands of the government agencies. That's a huge issue because isn't it under the 1974 uh, U.S. Privacy Laws, Privacy Act, they are not supposed to have any secret files, and well, yet not- they can buy from ChoicePoint and they can buy from LexisNexis and Axiom and all these big uh, data brokers and, and somehow skirt the law, can't they? So that is, that's a challenge that, they, uh, that, that someone in Congress asked them to take a look at. They've also reviewed the the TSA, you know, databases uh, in terms of who gets on airplanes and who doesn't, and uh, there were a lot of privacy issues with that, and the fact that the TSA was not able to address some of these issues, I think, stopped uh, stopped one of their programs, at least temporarily, till they could resolve them. So Right. We had the TSA uh, privacy officer on the show to talk about those, um, the watch lists and the no-fly right. lists, and and uh, yeah, she told us a lot more would be happening. But uh, yeah, this is this is this is there's just so much going on. How did you get involved, Mary, in in being a professor of information technology? I mean, how, how did you become so involved in that? How did you get started in that? I got started. This was uh, I came out of graduate school in the late 1960s, and I was just I was it got interested in technology. For some reason, I went to work for a computer manufacturer that is no longer in business, the Burroughs Corporation, and I worked for them for about eight years, and then I went back to graduate school at UCLA and got my Ph.D. in management, majoring in information systems, and uh, became a professor. So I've been doing that since 1980, and they're just, I, I, I'm not, people always a lot of people have a defining moment how they got interested in privacy. Right. I do not know what my defining moment was, but it happened about 1988. And uh, it's just that it's such an interesting area to study because the problems are very hard and they're very challenging and things are always changing. Just when you think things have gotten as bad as they can possibly get, suddenly there's something new and there's always technology that's getting ahead of having a public conversation about well, what's okay and what's not okay and what's fair. Right, exactly. It's like when you think about bio, biometrics and, you know, how RFIDs. we're moving. And RFIDs, yeah, we had on our show, we had um, Catherine Albert who wrote uh, Spy Chips. And uh, and we've had uh, Simidian, Senator Simidian from California, who's introduced legislation on, on uh, you know, just kind of safeguarding the RFIDs. But you're absolutely right. We're forging ahead with all this technology, and we really haven't built in the safeguards to, to you know, to even know what's going on with this stuff and what the ramifications are. So um, there's some, you know, real scary stuff. So Lloyd is pointing at me that we have about, just about five or six minutes here. Can you 
kind of tell us what you think should be happening in terms of what you've learned from this study and what you'd like to see happen as we move forward with privacy um, in higher education? Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, there are a lot of things that people can do an individ- as an individual if they care about doing something. I mean, the number one thing people can do is they can go out and visit the website of any of the schools where they have some kind of an affiliation. Maybe they're a student, maybe they're an alum, maybe they work there. If, you, if you're working there, you actually are on the inside, so you may have a chance to influence uh, polic- the policymakers at the particular school. But go take a look at the privacy policy. If you don't like it, contact the school and voice your concerns. Because if they don't hear anything, if they, if they don't think people are concerned, that's one way to get their attention. And that, in fact, happened at my, at my own institution. So, and, uh, Even blogging about it so that you find out if there's other people that are concerned like you are, right? I don't know if yeah. I have that kind of a thing. So you, there's, um, there's power in numbers. <laughs> there's power in numbers. But basically, you know, people need to speak up. I think if they care, that's, that's the first thing they can do. Second, at the national level, I don't think a great deal is going to happen. There is no indication that, any, that the, uh, the White House and the executive branch of the government is particularly interested in privacy at the moment, and there's no government agency that's pushing uh, privacy for higher education, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of too bad. One of the ways things improved a lot in the private sector, the dot-com world, was that in the 1990s, the Federal Trade Commission got privacy on the radar screen. Exactly. Uh, they decided this was an issue. It was an economic issue because if people were not confident about doing business online because of privacy, it would be, it would fail. Right. And so they went out and said, okay, private sector, either you do it or we're going to go to Congress and ask for laws. And this really got the private sector going. They did several of these web surveys. The results initially were terrible, and uh, then things got better. And so pretty much if you go to a dot-com website today, they're going to have a privacy notice. It may not be perfect. It may not be the best, but everybody is pretty much doing something. And, right. so, and that's and this is without any kind of a law. Unfortunately, there's no similar push to get privacy on the higher education radar screen. I'm hoping the study will do it, but uh, without somebody pushing behind the study, uh, I'm not so sure, unless there's just some stuff behind the scenes. Well, Mary, we're going to have to get people out there to start talking about this survey, and hopefully this radio show will help, and you getting out there and and sharing that information with other professors and your speaking engagements and the GAO and kind of passing it around like you did. I think, you know, it was great when you passed it to Beth, and she passed it to me, and I passed it on, so this is where we are. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for coming on, and you stay in touch. I want to know more about your future surveys, and you'll come back on and tell us more. I'd love to, Mari. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank thank you. All right, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org. You can learn more about our previous guests and also listen to their interviews at KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy and you can see us here every week at 5 to 6 p.m. hear us every week at 5 to 6 p.m. and you can also download our podcast and even subscribe to our podcast so you'll stay up to the minute with the latest in privacy stay tuned uh, after our show tonight at 6 to 8 p.m. is Neapolitan Music 
with Jessabine and Rena. And then from 8 to 10 is Between the Lines. And uh, then 10 to 12 is Straight Out of Ilvine with, let's see, with Big R. <laughs> I want to thank Lloyd for being such a great engineer. And remember to protect your privacy. And look at those privacy policies. Thank you very much for joining us. This is Mari Frank signing off for Privacy Piracy. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 